Welcome to the M Files. You're listening to Valerie and Ella Mayers, Patty Woodfinkel, and John Woodward, opening up the cabinet of curiosities to the museum world. Welcome to our first episode of 2022. We meant to have an episode out two weeks ago, but a few things cropped up during the last couple of weeks, and we weren't able to get that episode out. But moving ahead, we'll be back to our regular schedule for the rest of the season. With the housekeeping out of the way, we'd like to welcome our good friend and longtime colleague Steve Whittington to the podcast. Steve is the executive director of the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum in Leadville, Colorado. His career as an archaeologist and museum professional spans over 30 years. In 2018 and 2019, Steve served as the president for the Mountain Plains Museum Association. Outside of work, Steve takes advantage of living in the highest city in North America. His hobbies include mountain biking and cross-country skiing. Thanks for joining us, Steve. We appreciate you coming tonight. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. So my first question for you is the same question that I ask all of our guests. What is the strangest thing that has ever happened to you in a museum? This could be a museum you worked at, a museum you were visiting, or any point in your past. When I was first a museum director, the museum I was working at was in Maine. And the building had been built by a famous architect who built it with a flat roof, which is not the best thing to do in a snowy environment. And so he was also known for building buildings that leaked. And so there was water that leaked in through the walls. And that was just part of the problem. Um, We didn't realize at the time that there was a bunch of black mold that had grown behind some of the panels on the walls. Oh, no. But another issue about the place was that they, we, we shared the museum space with a, art, a big art center, performing arts center. And so they had put wool carpet throughout this huge building. And some, at some point, um, carpet beetles got in there. And they had about 25,000 square feet of wool carpet that was a bit moldy and wet that they could chew on. And of course, most much of our collection was made of organic materials. And oh, so no. um, we had to start ripping panels out of the walls and taking our artifacts. And we got a big industrial freezer so that we could get rid of the bugs. And... Um, That was when I learned about carpet beetles and their danger to collections. And so that was a a strange thing and a strange thing to happen to me in my first job. Uh, Listeners, you cannot see the faces that John and I were making during this, but it was pretty awful. Oh, goodness. Every building has its own character. So sometimes that's a good character. Sometimes it's a bad character. And I've thankfully I've never had to deal with the flat roof, but water has always been one of those Achilles heels that you never know when it's going to come pouring down from, you know, where. That sounds Um, like a nightmare. (laughs) Yeah. And beyond the, the troubles we had with the collections, there were human resources problems. Some people are very sensitive to mold. Mm-hmm. And so they couldn't even go into our museum. We had a couple of employees who had to work outside of the museum for a long time. Yeah, that's, you know, I, one of the museums I've worked at, we had, we had a water problem. Uh, the city came in and put in a brand new water meter. And right afterwards, it's 
where they did the where the contractor did the work, we ended up with this torrent. Thankfully, oh. thankfully, one of our employ my employees caught it like within thirty minutes of it starting, so we were able to get it stopped and dried out quickly. But if that had gone, at, we we caught it on a Friday about ten a.m. Oh. And if we hadn't caught it. Uh, because the employee was putting away the Christmas decorations, it could have been all weekend long, or worse. And uh, so it's uh, everyone's had the those. That's one of those museum horror stories that you hope you hope never happens to you, but usually finds some way to to get you, especially if you're a director. Yep. Well, yeah, and luckily my museum now we are open. We're either open seven days a week or there's somebody in the building almost every day. And so if something like that were to happen here, we would probably catch it relatively quickly. Yeah, and that could be more of a problem for, you know, those museums that are only open maybe five days a week, uh, like my current institution. Or, you know, some of those seasonal uh, institutions that like the Fort Casper Museum here in Casper you know that their fort buildings are are closed up during the winter so if something were to happen uh it might be a couple of days before they're able to recognize that something bad has mm-hmm. happened um mm-hmm. another example is like the the crimson dawn museum here in casper mm-hmm. that's up on casper mountain it's it's seasonal and during the winter sometimes people don't go up there i know they had a case of vandalism i think last year or the year before so you, know, you get there's all sorts of, you know, not only natural, but man-made disasters you have to deal with. So, Yeah, I think they had a break-in this year, too. Mm-hmm. Up there. Well, we, we have an off-site um, part of our museum, the Matchless Mine. Mm-hmm. And that's those buildings are 125 years old, and they're made of wood. And so they're exposed to the intense sunlight and also the heavy snowfall we have here. A couple of years ago, I went out in March and took a picture of one of the buildings that had about five feet of snow on its roof. And I was worried that it wasn't going to survive the year. So we've had to do a lot of historic preservation projects on that site to make sure that everything's stable and will survive. Well, Steve, you've talked a little bit about your first museum, but why don't you tell us a little bit more about yourself and so you can share that with our listeners. Um, About me personally or about my museum? Well, let's start with you and your career in the museum field, and then we can segue into uh, a little bit more about your current institution. Sure. Well, um, when I was first at Penn State University was when I began to get involved with museums. Um, I was work, I was the coordinator for the Anthropology Museum there and found out how much I really enjoyed working for museums. I, uh, I had thought I would like to do it, but I had never really had the experience. And I went and um, lobbied the director of the museum, and he gave me the assistantship to run the museum for two years. And so I really learned a lot on the, on the ground having to teach myself and read, read things. And I think it's a wonder that I ever finished my PhD because I enjoyed it so much <laughs> that I just spent a lot of time working on exhibits and working on collections, things like that. 
So that that's when I really discovered my passion for museums. Um, what followed was an internship at another museum in Pennsylvania that was a couple of months. And then I got hired to be the executive, the director of the museum um, at the University of Maine called the Hudson Museum. And that's uh, that museum is an anthropology museum with a really fantastic collection. And I was there for almost 12 years. And then I moved to Wake Forest University where I became the director of the Museum of Anthropology for another almost 12 years. And finally, I moved here to Leadville, Colorado to the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum in 2014. And so I've been here ever since. And so that adds up to 31 years of being a museum director now. But I'm about to retire. The end of May, I am going to retire and spend some time traveling and also, I hope, doing writing because I've got about 30 years of archaeological research that I have not had a chance to write up. And so I've got a lot to do to keep me busy. My uh, my uncle is a historian based in Kansas City. And uh, when he retired, he, he told me that he had a, a stack of books just waiting to be written. So I think that I I totally understand wh- where you're coming from. He, uh, it's uh, it's one of those things he's done uh, all his his life, but he's like, now I have time to do it. Yeah, I want to say. Oh, I was just going to say congratulations on your retirement and your writing. Fingers crossed, you get it done. Yeah, I know it's going to be hard to buckle down and really do it every day, but I have a lot. I have reports that are way, way overdue, and I've really got to get to it while I still can. Yeah, it is. um, It's a daunting task when you have a lot of writing to do, but it also can be a lot of fun to to finally be able to get it all out and to to articulate all the things that you need to and get it out there so that your peers can read it and and find out what's going on at either at your museum or at your archaeological sites or you know, no matter what, what it is that you're writing about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I'm going to lose my office space at the museum when I retire. And so now we're trying to arrange to have an addition built onto our house because we've got a really small miner's cottage and um, there's no room for me to spread my stuff out. So oh. I'm, we're trying to arrange that right now. So you and you and your current museum, the one that you're going to retire from, are in Leadville, Colorado, right? Right. And so in, tell case us- you don't, in case you don't know about Leadville, it is the highest elevation city in North America at over 10,000 oh, wow. feet. It uh, is a silver boom town. At one time, it had about 30,000 people in it back in the 1880s. Now its population is about 3,500. And then if you look at the whole county, it's about 7,500. So when, when the silver boom ended in 1893, the population sort of trickled away bit by bit. But uh, we're still here. It's now shifting over to tourism as the basis of its economy. There is still one large mine near town. It's the Climax Molybdenum Mine. 
first thing I had to learn when I got here was how to say molybdenum and not flub it up. But um, that that mine will eventually close. And so um, everybody in town, especially the people associated with museums and uh, cultural attractions are really working to promote tourism and to get people to think of us as a tourist destination or a, a place to visit. We don't have any huge ski areas right near town. We do have a small one, but we are surrounded by Aspen Vale and Breckenridge and Copper Mountain. And so there are a lot of skiers around here in the wintertime. And in the summertime, it's the center of really intensive extreme sports, 100-mile foot races, 100-mile bicycle races, that sort of thing. And if you think 10,000 feet is high, people in those races go up to over 13,000 feet while they're um, doing their their thing. I don't do that. <laughs> but anyway, so the, the National Mining Hall of Fame and Museum um, moved here to Leadville in in uh, 1987, and it occupied the old high school building. And so the center of our facility is was built in 1899. And then there are a couple of wings on either end that were more recent. And it, so we have about 25,000 square feet of exhibit space. Um, if you, depending on how you count, we may have as many as 60 exhibits. And it's all about mining in the United States, past, present, and future. We even have an exhibit about mining in outer space. And then we have the National Mining Hall of Fame, which is up on the top level with over 250 inductees in it. Those are all people important to the mining industry in the United States. And every year we do a big induction banquet um, in some city it, uh, most recently, it's been sort of focused on Denver, and we induct about four to five new people into the Hall of Fame, and that draws a few hundred people to a, a big gala event every year. So that's that's sort of where we are and what we do. And we were chatting before we started recording, and I was surprised at how many people from Penn State are or have been inducted into the the Mining Hall of Fame which is a, a really neat connection to the, for me, from here in the East Coast to now Rocky Mountain West, where you guys are. Well, it's surprising how many universities used to have mining programs all mm -hmm. over the country. Um, Penn State still is one of the places that does a lot of important work related to mining. But um, a, a lot of the mining departments have fallen on hard times since... Mm -hmm. Um, you know, in the last 50 years. And so right now there really aren't that many. Well, but, I think uh, the, uh, wasn't it the, all of the land grant colleges were originally mm -hmm. agriculture and mining, A&M. Yep. A&M. Well, so. so, but that, that's really changed. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, places like Columbia and Harvard had mining programs at one time. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, and you look at, uh, say my alma mater at Wyoming, we have the, you know, the energy and mineral sciences, but, you know, it's mostly talking about things like hydraulic fracturing and oil recovery versus, you know, hard rock mining. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so, some shakeups in that department going on right now. So, 
And people in Wyoming understand the public attitude toward mining, which is pretty Mm -hmm. negative in general. And what we do here at the museum is really try to educate people about the fact that they would not have cell phones or computers or basically any kind of technology without mining. Green energy is totally dependent on mining, and uh, it's really not going to go away. And so people just need to find a way to appreciate it and learn to live with it. And the mining industry needs to find a way to live with people around them, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the area I grew up in in, in uh, central Wyoming had uh, in the 50s been a mecca for uranium mining. Uh, so we and afterwards became oil and gas. But so we saw everything from uh, underground to uh, surface mining and different things like that. So it was it's always kind of fun to read the old newspapers and see uh, the local stores advertising for Geiger counters and and different uh, types cool. of prospect. <laughs> yeah, I always thought that was pretty neat. But uh uh, so, Steve, you got your start with with anthropology, what, and and also in you know academic museums. What was the big transition, or some of the challenges you saw when you transitioned away from a academic institution into, I'm assuming, uh, the Hall of Fame as a as a nonprofit? So, what were some of the challenges you saw there? Well, I through time I had decided I really didn't want to do teaching anymore which is one of the things I was doing at the university. Um, I really wanted to focus a lot more on just the museum aspect of my career. And um, one of the things that had frustrated me, this is going to sound really weird, but one of the things that had frustrated me working at universities was how restrictive they were about fundraising. I always thought that my museums could be more than they were if I had been freed up to ask people for money. And it's a very, very difficult thing to convince university development offices to let somebody like a museum director go out and ask for money. And so um, one of the things that you have to do an awful lot when you're at an independent museum that doesn't get any kind of government support or have any kind of real um, parent organization is you have to ask a lot of people for a lot of money a lot of the time. And um, I did discover that I may have a facility for doing that. Um, You know, it's, I've been asking a lot of people for money, writing a lot of grant proposals, and um, we've now raised an endowment for the, for this museum. I've been getting, you know, we, we've just gone through, well, we're now in our third year of COVID, and um, I had to apply for a lot of grants and loans to keep this place afloat when we were closed for three months. And so um, that was, you know, that's a real transition. Luckily, I had written a lot of grant proposals for research when I was working at the university. And I had raised a lot of money from, you know, local humanities councils and things like that. So that that part wasn't a real transition for me. I already had the basic skill set to write the grant proposals. But, you know, finally 
getting the opportunity to go to directly to individuals or to have to go to any foundation I wanted to and ask them for money. That was that was something new. And, uh, you know, it's it's worked out, but uh, it is it is something that uh, if you don't if you don't want to do it, if you're afraid to talk to people or ask them for money, it may not be the right job. Um, yeah, that 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 is very true. Um, as someone who is now not a director, um, that was one of the most difficult parts of my job. I I don't enjoy asking people for money. Um, so that is that is definitely something that if you have the skill set to do that, that is a bonus for being a museum director. Like, I don't mind writing grants or if a donor comes up and says, hey, I've got some money I'd like to donate to you guys. What kind of projects do you have that I could fund? Like, I'm all about that. But I hate going up to people I don't know and having to be introduced to them specifically because I need to ask them for money. So, yeah. Um, another another thing I had to make a transition is uh, in in the universities, I had advisory boards and mm-hmm. they were. They were boards that I recruited from the start, and I wrote their bylaws. Um, I figured out what size to make them. I'd go out and ask the people to get involved. And at this museum, there is a board of directors that has existed as long as the museum has, and they are my boss. They're not advisors. They tell me what to do. And luckily, you know, we have a good relationship, and we work hand in hand all the time. But um, that's that was a real transition for me to go from having advisors to now reporting to a board. Uh, and that's, you know, that can be a real difficult challenge for some people. Um, it you have to you have to be forthright and in, in saying what you need or what is, you know, what you see as a situation but then you've also got to be willing to listen and sometimes back off. So in our last episode, um, we talked quite a bit about the great resignation and whether we mean to be a part of it or we're accidentally a part of it. Um, with your retirement, you are going to be participating in that, that whole movement could you tell us a little bit about your upcoming retirement? You had mentioned that you have a lot of papers to write, but um, if you wouldn't mind touching on what what has inspired you to decide that it's time to retire? I think I, well, I think when I took this job, I had a, a notion that I had a certain amount of time that I would mm-hmm. be willing to work and then I would eventually be planning on retiring. I there was a time when I didn't think I'd ever retire. I thought I'd <laughs> die in my office, but um, that that changed about the time I moved here. And I thought, you know, they're going to be. There was a certain sort of general idea. Oh, I'll be doing this for seven years, eight years, something like that. COVID hit, and that was extremely stressful. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we had to close down for three months. We couldn't work in the museum. Uh, we weren't sure we would survive. We, our financial state hadn't been that great to be before that. And so, you know, the first few weeks, I was just looking at 
foundations. I was writing letters to foundations like crazy. I did at least 25 letters of interest for foundations. I didn't get a single grant from any of them hmm. because they didn't want to talk to anybody and they weren't in their offices either. And so you couldn't even really contact anybody. But then the government started to step in and, you know, their loan programs, their payroll protection programs, that sort of thing. And I applied for everything that came along and got just about everything I applied for once those things opened up. And so that really saved our bacon during that period. But I found that by the time we were able to reopen again and, you know, get more people coming in, do the projects that we had planned before this all started. And then even in 2021, when we, when we had pretty much our best year in many, many years, by that time, I just felt really tired, really burned out and had decided that it was really time to move on and let somebody else run this place. And so that, yeah, and I, I am a casualty of COVID, but I didn't realize that everybody else was too. And uh, really and truly, you're not retiring, retiring, because you don't plan to ride off into the sunset and sit around drinking mimosas. You've got a whole nother, another section of life lined up with your, your paper writing and any additional archaeological investigations that you're going to be on and all of that good stuff. So, Well, and there will be some old fashions in my future. <laughs> also, I like to brew beer, and so I'll be doing some of that. And my wife and I really like to study wine. We just took Mm -hmm. a three-week vacation out in California visiting wineries in Napa and Sonoma. I saw that. And and so that was a lot of fun. And we'll do that sort of thing in the future, too. Nice. So it's not all going to be work and writing. Yeah. Uh, you got to balance work and play and have a little fun. You know, uh, speaking about work and play, something that we we talked about in a recent episode was, um, you know, the the nece- the need to maintain a good, healthy work life balance and be able to um, find time for yourself, for your mental, you know, to be, keep a healthy mental, uh, the, your best version of yourself. While Which on museum the job. people seem really bad at doing? <laughs> I I'm I've. Yeah, I'm 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 better than I used to be, but uh, you know, as someone who's you know looking back at their career, what are some of the things that you did to make sure that you, uh, you know, maintained good wellness uh, through you know as you were in your different institutions? You know, what was what were some of the things that you did to you know keep going so you didn't end up a, a casualty in your office at the end of the day? One of the things I did for a long, long time, especially when we lived in less snowy areas than Leadville, was that I would work my time at the museum. And then before I went home, I would go out running for a couple of miles, or I would go and lift weights or something like that. Something that really made a transition between my work day and my home life. Um, Another thing is that my wife and I stopped talking about work so much at home. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, we we made a sort of a conscious effort. We were both professional. She was a, a library director. And, you know, it was very easy for us to fall into just talking about our work all the time. And we had kids and we had pets and we had other interests. And so that was where we sort of had to draw the line and just not regale each other with how bad the day was Mm -hmm. or things like that. So, yeah, it is really important to find a way to have a, to compartmentalize things to some extent. And that, that doesn't mean I'm perfect at it. You know, I, I get up early in the morning now because the dogs love to wake me up at six <laughs> or six thirty. Yep. And, so, and, and, you know, after I make a cup of coffee, I tend to get on the internet, see what kinds of emails I've gotten over overnight and decide which ones I can deal with right then and which ones I'm going to have to wait until I get to work to take on. But, um, you know, I mean, at something doing something physical is a really good transition. And so that's one what I did. I started running back um, in college and then didn't, didn't stop until I moved to Leadville. I mm-hmm. hate running in Leadville because there's so little air here. It's really tough. <laughs> but, I, but I do still play racquetball. I play pickleball. I do cross-country skiing. Mm-hmm. During the summertime, I do mountain biking. And so those habits are still with me. And they've they've kept me sane, as sane as I am. Oh, you know, museum people, right? Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's good to have that transition time. Um, some people enjoy their commute. Uh, some people will do a physical activity. It's, it's, Everybody's different, but that's a great suggestion to to really have that hard division between home and work life, which is necessary. Mm-hmm. Agreed. Yeah, I like hitting the gym after work. Then, you know, that way I feel, you know, I'm if I'm stuck behind my desk most of the day, it gets me mm-hmm. moving. Yeah, I I have gotten to walk more since becoming a collections manager because I'm walking between we're moving collections into new cabinets. So, you know, I'm moving the collection, then I got to go back to my office and input the data and then back to the collection. And it's awesome. I've really enjoyed it getting up. Um, and then I thought of a question while you were talking about that. Um, completely unrelated, I think, now that I think about it. But tell us what as your favorite exhibit at your museum currently? Hmm. Darn. <laughs> well, <laughs> I know you said there were like 60 of them, which is, yeah. is what was percolating in my head as you were talking. And then I got thinking about Leadville and, and the museum again. And, and I was curious about the exhibits. Well, we, we have a, a walkthrough life-size mine exhibit. Oh, that's cool. Um, it's all made out of paper mache and yeah, pieces still... of wood and things like that. But, you know, it, it feels like you're walking through a real mine, and it is based on a real mine that used to be in operation around here. So I I think that's pretty cool. It, it could use more interpretive materials in it, but one of the issues about that is, you know, how do you integrate a bunch of <laughs> a bunch of text panels and things into what's supposed to feel like a real mind? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I really like that one. Um, we 
the curator here just opened a brand new exhibit on reclamation. And that's one of the things that we really try to emphasize to the public is that mining is has become a very responsible business. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to open a mine, you've got to have a plan for what you're going to do when you close it. And so this is a brand new, really colorful exhibit uh, that I, I think uh, really gets the point across and it integrates Spanish and English into the exhibit because every exhibit we do now we're integrating Spanish into it because much of our population here is uh, Hispanic. And, and so I, I really like that one too because it's so new and so fresh looking. I think that's really great. So do you have someone on staff that can translate that into Spanish for you? We, we contract with a woman here in town. There are plenty nice. of Spanish speakers. Uh, mm -hmm. she, she works for another nonprofit, so she freelances for us. Okay. And then I, I know enough Spanish that then I can review what she's written and mm -hmm. see if I catch any, any things that I, I'm not good. I can't translate mm -hmm. to the extent that she can, but I can catch where she might have misunderstood the English word that we used mm -hmm. and I might understand, I might be able to say, okay, well, I think a better word would be this. That's cool. That's, I, I, I haven't developed an exhibit for my new museum yet. Um, but that is something that I think that we should look into to doing um, is translating our, some of our exhibits, especially some of the smaller ones that would be easy to start or, to start with um, into different languages. Penn State has such a large international community that I think it would perhaps make our uh, exhibit space more welcoming to a larger group of people. Mm -hmm. And engaging because you, you can draw from those students to translate for you. Yes, bingo. So Well, you get what you pay for, though. You do. <laughs> because I've, I've done that as well. Um, I've had, I've used volunteers to translate and mm -hmm. uh, the results weren't really as good as you might hope for. Yeah. Or in, in one case, I, the first museum I worked at, we had uh, someone had donated a, a, a church ledger that was from a German community in the County. And so I went to the uh, uh, nearby university and asked their German language professor to uh, help me translate it. She looked at it and said, well, I can't read this because it's, and I said, well, it's in German, right? And she's like, well, I think so, but it's written in cursive. So oh. it, was, <laughs> it, was, uh, it was German cursive. And I thought, well, all righty, that's uh that's a, that's a tough one. Yep. But, uh, <laughs> so well, it's get, getting harder and harder to find people who can write or read cursive. Yeah, uh, I can. I can. Luckily, uh, several of our labels that I've come across, older labels are written in cursive and in, in the database it has, you know, unintelligible word. I'm like, no, that says Pittsburgh. Look. <laughs> <laughs> well, I blame my parents for teaching me cursive. <laughs> I blame the school district. Darn school wow. district. I have to blame I, the I have to blame the nuns for teaching it to me. <laughs> well, Steve, I had one last question, and this is uh, it's something that you brought up when you talked about the molybdenum. Now I flipped it up. Mine, 
closing in, is that right? Molybdenum. Or molybdenum. Uh, my my molybdenum. friends in the uh, chemistry community will probably you know bash me over the head with the periodic <laughs> table, but you know you mentioned how the, the the economy in Leadville is starting to transition away from you know a mining based background to a more tourism and cultural heritage background. You know, here in Wyoming, we see a lot of the same thing, uh, especially in communities like Gillette and in the Powder River Basin, which do have a strong history in in energy extraction and mining. But now as the economy is changing, you know, those uh, traditional or or older forms of uh, the economy are being switched around. So what are some of the things that you've helped work on in the Leadville area with some of your community partners to help uh, create a more enriching uh, cultural heritage scene uh, that helps uh, benefit your museum and, and the community? Well, I can tell you, but I'm not going to take credit for creating any of these things. We have the Lake County Tourism Panel here, which is an official body that is supported by lodging taxes. And every every county in Colorado has one of those. I, I'm not sure what the situation is in other states, but there is a set amount or there's an amount of money that comes to that panel that works uh, with the county and is and its charge is to promote tourism to a particular county. Now, Lake County is small, and in the, and we've typically not had much in the way of lodging tax money coming to us, but that's changing. Uh, the budget of the tourism panel has grown at least doubled, if not tripled or even quadrupled since I got involved with it. And so that means that we can do more. We can buy more ads. We can, um, you know, hire people to get to make really nice videos of what's around here. It's not just cultural tourism, though. We have an amazing environment here with 14,000 foot mountains all around us. And we have all sorts of amazing winter activities. And then the summers here are probably as gorgeous as you'll find anywhere. So there's a lot to promote. And, And so it's everything from the environment to the you know, the railroad that you can ride here to the museums. And we have a lot of museums here um, to the opera house we have in town, all those things. And so, you know, we worked to get, we, when I was on the panel, we worked together to promote all those things um, outside of our own county to bring people into the county who would help support our economy. the, the cultural institutions here also created, a, at one point, a passport program. And so you could buy one passport, and then you could visit all of the museums in town, and you wouldn't have to pay. You just have to show the passport. Oh, and that's cool. uh, that went on for quite a while. So there, in the past, were eight different cultural organizations or cultural history organizations here in town. And so you could, with one passport, go to every one of them and uh, visit. And that has sort of fallen on hard times uh, for a number of reasons and probably needs to be reinvented. I think um, all of the organizations in town try to know 
what happens in each place. And then if somebody asks, well, what else is there to do here? We, we can say, oh, you should go to Temple Israel, or you should visit the Tabor Opera House, or things like that. So, you know, we just sort of know about what is available here. We try to visit each other, and then we cross-promote. So those have been things that have helped out, I think. And that's a really, really great mentality for the museums and the cultural entities to have in town, mm -hmm. you know, working together and then bringing, bringing effort to advertising and to uh, push people towards the other entities as well. Um, mm -hmm. It's always nice when, when you see museums working together like that. Well, we're not, we're not competing. We're, um, you know, we're all in the, in the same business really mm -hmm. and we're um and the more there is to do in town the longer people will stay and the, the more we can help each other yep beds and heads no other way around heads and beds <laughs> <laughs> definitely well i think that's going to wrap up uh this edition of the m files we'd like to thank steve again for joining us uh today uh just a quick note you can Continue to follow us uh, in between episodes on our uh, Facebook page at the M Files Podcast. Uh, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, please uh, feel free to give us a, an email at the M Files Podcast at gmail.com or shoot us a message, obviously, on our Facebook page. Uh, so, with that, we'll see you in a couple weeks and thanks for tuning in. Thanks, Steve. Thank you for having me.